can't pay the IRS, haven't filed in a while, receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA has brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Victor. TNUSA.com slash Victor. <laughs> Ladies, hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. You can find the Victor Davis Hanson Show at victorhanson.com, at justthenews.com, John Solomon's website. That's our happy home. Today, we're going to be talking about, well, the World Health Organization may be handed over by the Biden administration oversight of American policy when it comes to health, when it comes to pandemics. I mean, they did such a great job of it uh, when when the uh, Chinese virus came out in 2020. But now the Biden administration is thinking of, of handing over the keys to the kingdom to this U.N. agency. And we're going to get Victor's thoughts on this on the Department of Defense handing over files in a partisan and political way and other matters. We'll get to them right after these important messages. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor-selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com, fieldofgreens.com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. 
Bite Clear liners are doctor directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, my friend, I'm going to do something that, you know, probably torques most of our listeners. But I have to read a little something here. And this is from the Epoch Times, uh, the uh, February 22nd. Edition. It's a great paper weekly. They carry Victor's columns. It's really, really very good paper. Uh, the head story, top story in this edition. It's the headline: U.S. negotiates deal to give who World Health Organization authority over pandemic policies. Let me just read the first few paragraphs here, Victor, and you uh, please then uh, give us your thoughts. Uh, the Biden administration is preparing to sign up the United States to a, quote, legally binding, end quote, accord with the World Health Organization that would give the Geneva-based United Nations Health Agency the authority to dictate America's policies during a pandemic. Despite widespread criticism of the WHO's response to the COVID pandemic, U.S. Health and Human Services Secretary Xavier Bacara, it's hard to believe that guy is anything, joined with uh, WHO Director General Tedros Adhanman Jebriasis. <laughs> All we need to remember is he's the uh, Ethiopian Kami who's in the total control of Red yeah, China. Former insurrectionist leader. Right. And he so he we're handing over our uh, policy to this guy, let's just finish this story. Uh, there was, in September 22, it was announced that the, uh, the the U.S. and WHO had a strategic dialogue. Together, they developed a, quote, platform, I can't believe this, to maximize the longstanding U.S.-WHO partnership and to protect and promote the health of all people around the globe, including the American people, end quote, the ones that didn't die because of WHO's policy during the last pandemic. Victor, this is outrageous. This is yeah. our sovereignty. What are yeah. your thoughts? Well, I would juxtapose that story to two vignettes. One is Donald Trump took us out of WHO because remember that Teddy or Tedros, as he's known by, uh, condemned us as unfair or racist when Trump had the travel ban that saved thousands of lives i.e. no more direct flights from Wuhan to LAX or JFK or SFO when they were barred from going anywhere in China except to spread it with us. And he was praising the Chinese the whole time uh, and then attacking us. And so, and then we apparently were more concerned about working with this guy within the mayor of East Palestine. I say that only because Joe Biden didn't even know if he called him, but he didn't call him. He couldn't even call the people down in East Palestine. We talk about this globalist project. Uh, and if you look at COVID and superimposed WHO, Tedros, uh, Fauci, Francis Collins, uh, Peter Daszak and his Echo Health, all of the, the Lancet, right? The so-called esteemed scientific researchers and immunologists and health experts who went to China and came back and told us that this 
lab was not the origins and then basically confessed that they were not allowed access and they were there to whitewash it. And then many of them disassociated themselves under pressure. And I could get into the Stanford medical experts that attacked Scott Atlas and Jay Bacharya for being, you know, wrong when they were right. So my point is that the American elite, bicoastal elite that are so wedded to these international people like Peter Daszak and WHO and the people in the CDC that and the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious that fund that fund gain of function research going on in China. All of those people uh, were wrong on this. And are, there's a lot of people who died that didn't have to because of these people. And they have no allegiance. They have no empathy. They don't have any uh, grounding or bearing in a particular country or birthplace, except they're anti-American. And the most anti-American are a lot of the Americans. So this cosmopolitanism, that's, you know, goes back to Socrates, this idea that we're citizens of the world is just a, a moral dereliction of, of love and, and putting your country first. And that really has fatal consequences when you lower the bar of what's acceptable here to world standard. Because you look outside the United States and you see what's going on in the world and you think that they are going to be a model for us the way they do business. Which brings me back to the late Justice Ginsburg. Of all the stupid things she said, Jack, remember she did say that what's the big problem with abortion? I always thought right. we were aborting the right people. And they hushed right. that New Yorker interview up. But she said we have a lot to learn from foreign constitutions, especially the new South African constitution. And that was, you know, we know where South Africa is today. So globalism is really a sickness among our elite. It's kind of a, it's like the green religion, you know, the Davos globalist mindset. And right. They have contempt for us. And they shouldn't be listened to. They should be given no power. And they always try to put their interest, whether it's the Paris Climate Accord or the Rand Deal, where they try to circumvent the, the treaty obligations to ratify those in the Senate and they bypass them, or they they try to use international criminal court to go after American soldiers, or they try to make us abide by particular climate emissions that we more than meet, and then they say nothing when China and India violate them. So right. They're completely morally bankrupt, and we shouldn't give them this, this administration. Is, but then on the other hand, if you're going to put Sam Bankman in uh, the Department of Energy, and you're going to turn over the transportation, Pete Buttigieg, they couldn't be worse than these characters on the international stage. Maybe that's why they, they're they looking for help or partnership. Victor, I, I talked to you about this uh, offline, but you mentioned uh, Davos, and I, I had a conversation with Scott Atlas earlier this week about a project that he's launched, Global, Global Liberty Institute, which is fledgling, but I'm, I'm hoping and, and praying it will um, reach its uh, desired goal, and that's to create an alternative uh, to Davos, not an alternative to like a, you know, another the American League to the National League. They're both essentially doing the same thing. There's no aspirations for globalism in this in this project, but it's so dire what is happening 
what what these globalists are doing to the rest of the world that there needs to be some forceful uh presence to well the nice uh, thing about davos is that all of the conspiracy mongering you could imagine about what they're up to klaus schwab explicitly tri- trumps that he just says it you know that we need an international group of elites to have superpowers over national legislatures and governments. He believes that. And he says it. And he's, he writes a book about COVID and the Great Reset, basically saying that this panic that was induced by the reaction to the SARS virus is a wonderful paradigm, a model about how to seize control of government from the top down and make these stupid citizens, especially in the West, get rid of all of these ideas and impose instead the Green New Deal, diversity, equity, inclusion, equity, ESG, government, you know, environment, government, governance, uh, all of that stuff that has no constituency, no majority support. So it has to be implemented by fiat. And they look at the United States and they think, you know, the left did a wonderful job in the United States. We've got to think of John Kerry and an Al Gore and a Barack Obama and a Joe Biden because when we look at East Palestine, that's what they had to work with. That's America. We don't like America, people like that. But you know what? They took over the universities. They took over K-12. through They took over Hollywood. They took over Silicon Valley. They took over Wall Street. They took over the corporate boardroom. And you know what? They didn't have a majority support. They had to work with East Palestine people in Ohio. That's the kind of Americans that they had to work with. And yet they captured the elites, captured the power of the United States, and they're with us. And that's what's so bizarre about them. Right. There is no constituency for that except among the institutional power of these elites and that they exercise in the United States. So the they, elites, can do stuff, they can do stuff like this, partner with WHO. But that yeah. is a joke. He doesn't know anything about. I mean, if you want to look at California medical care, just go into any emergency room in a California hospital, and about forty-five percent of all the people admitted for any reason whatsoever are found to have diabetes. And the one thing you cannot say in California is that Mexico, according to UN statistics, had the highest rate of obesity in the world. And when you have millions of people coming across the border and you cling to the idea, you don't want to generalize and say that obesity is endemic in the Hispanic community and diabetes is well beyond the percentages of the demographic. You can't say that. And this is what we don't do in California. So when we have a California uh, anybody in California that's related to health issues is disingenuous. The, 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 what's sad about it is the narrative in California is, oh, there's all these shrinking white old people and they're all decrepit. They have a word for it. They use croakers. They're all going to croak. And we have all the young Hispanic people taking care of them in the rest home. That wouldn't be that bad. I mean, it, but the problem is, that when you look at diabetes and heart problems among the Hispanic community, you have crisis levels of a morbidity and people in their 30s and 40s and 50s. You know what I'm saying? 
Right. So you're going to get to a situation where somebody 70 is going to be taking care of somebody 50 unless they address the idea that you don't walk out of Safeway with 48 sugar regular Mountain Dews. You don't do that. But you can't talk about this. And that's that's what's so strange about this national these national health policy issues. They're all politicized. And they all uh, have certain taboo subjects that you don't get into. They talk about guns and guns, and that's a public health issue now. But they don't talk about 10,000 African-Americans being slaughtered every year, 95% of them by other African-Americans or more than that. And the culture that allows that to happen is it should be a public health issue. And what's really scary about the WHO and the CDC and the NIH is how they've gone into social problems and medicalized them, if I can make up that word. Sure, right. Do you remember? Well, no, you're, I'll, just, you're, I'll finish this rant. You remember right during the George Floyd riots when they had they were brainwashing us that social distancing and masks were going to stop the spread of the infection. Right. And all of a sudden, 1,100 people in the quote-unquote medical professionals signed a petition that it would be more in, injurious to African Americans not to go out and protest George Floyd than to abide by the quarantine that they swore was essential for the survival of the country. So when we had all of those massive protests, many of which with Antifa and BLM at the Vanguard turned violent, our medical professionals were saying that that's okay. Right. The guy couldn't be on the surfboard, couldn't be surfing in the Pacific Ocean. That was wrong. But in Brooklyn, at the height of this pandemic, it was fine to have 15,000 people assemble on Absolutely. a Sunday that's to why protest. It's so, it's so corrupt. It's ideology. Again, the theme that we've been talking about these last broadcasts is ideology is a moral corrupter. It just makes it just renders ridiculous all of your standards and your right. protocols. You don't follow them because you give exemptions for ideology. And right. ideology in the country today, unfortunately, is is defined largely by racial fixations and obsessions. Victor, when you take ideology and you mix in uh, people who want to just by nature, by their own nature, want to make life more difficult for other people, for whatever reason, the thrill they get. I have to make a little com a commercial for, I, I watched the second season of Clarkson's Farm, which I don't I think you've seen. I've never seen it. it. Well, it's on Amazon Prime, and uh, he's tried to open, and of course, Jeremy Clarkson is popular, he's wealthy, so he he can suffer the some of the blows, but to watch... Uh, it, to, to watch government bureaucracy uh, of an insane level. And you understand this as a farmer, you know, how we, we didn't understand how much farm farming was under the control of the government already. You think, you know, private property really doesn't apply that much to farmers as it does to other people. But to see the insanity of um, overregulation mixed with people who just want to say no to you, to make you suffer and oh, bust I, your stones. And that was the uh, two things I think govern my ideological orientation because I because I grew up in a Democratic family. Now, albeit they were Harry Truman conservative Democrats, but what destroyed me as a young kid was 
A, farming full time and seeing these people come out in these nice shiny trucks and these little badges. And then all the people I saw that were farming were grizzled and they were torn up and they had uh, farm mechanical injuries and they were going broke or they were working 20 hours. And these people would treat them like dirt and lecture down to them. And they were so sophisticated. And, and they all came from these alphabet soups, uh, Raisin Administrative Committee, RAC, and stuff like that. And that and then the academic experience. But it was very similar, Jack. You'd go up, I would go up to the academic world, and I'd see these professors. And they were working eight, 180 days a year with you know, a salary. They may have called it a nine-month contract, but it was basically a salary for the year. They got paid in 12-month installments. And we had one of the heaviest teaching loads in the state at the CSU system. It was four semester classes, but you're still talking about 12 hours a week, (laughs) you know, and a 40-hour week. And you're not up on a telephone pole, you're not down in a cesspool, or you're not you know, pulling a tandem disc for 15 hours a day. So when I got up there, I thought it was in heaven, but it was amazing to hear these professors. Oh, I'm so tired. This is so unfair. I'm so underpaid. Oh, that student came in late today. Or, oh, I was supposed to write a journal article this year, but I just don't want to do it. I'm going to go, you know, to Napa. It was just constant whining and complaining of this tenured job and then juxtapose, you would do that, and then I would walk, you know, off campus to some bakery or coffee shop, and I'd see some poor barista with a big line, and she's there from 6 in the morning making coffee, serving people, working hard. Or I'd see a guy with a jackhammer on campus taking out a patio, and I'd go talk to him, and they never complained at all. And I said to myself, there is something sick of the Western professional non-muscular classes of which, Victor, you're a part of now. And if you ever forget where you what you've been doing or where you came from, then you deserve to be ridiculed because these people have contempt for what the muscles that make this country move. And we saw that during COVID, getting back to the original topic of COVID policy. It was the guy driving the Amazon truck and the Home Depot uh you know, delivery guy that brought your oven when your oven broke down and the guy when your circuit breaker went out, came out two in the morning and worked on your circuit panel and stuff like that, where everybody else was zooming away and making more money than they ever had in their lives. They were expendable. They were expendable. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Victor, we have a sponsor today for this uh, podcast, and it's Youth Switch. And uh, uh, I have a question to ask. It's rhetorical. I'm going to ask it, and I'm going to answer it. Is it possible to extend lifespan and feel younger at the same time? Well, according to a Harvard scientist and Nobel Prize winning breakthrough, the answer is yeah, absolutely it is. How? By lengthening your telomeres. Your telomeres protect your DNA and play a critical role in the aging process. But many of us struggle with shortening telomeres. Why? Because of stress, unhealthy food, obesity, booze, plenty of things. And that's why I recommend Youth Switch. 
I take it. I take the youth. I'm going to shake a bottle here. I'm shaking my bottle of youth switch. Youth switch is all natural doctor approved, manufactured right here in America. No GMO, soy free, dairy free, gluten free, vegan. Hey, uh, youth switch contains a potent blend of adaptogens that promote healthier telomeres and longer lifespans. It boosts energy and can support regeneration of healthy organ systems. You can try Youth Switch for yourself risk-free today and receive a free bottle of Ageless Brain. I take that too. As a bonus, Ageless Brain is a great product. It helps you improve your focus, your memory, and your mood. You'll also receive four bonus eBooks to boost every aspect of your health and longevity. How do you get all this? Well, go to youthswitchmd.com slash news. J-U-S-T-N-E-W-S, to claim your supply of Youth Switch and all five bonus gifts. That's youthswitchmd.com slash justnews to order Youth Switch today. We thank the good folks at Youth Switch for sponsoring the Victor Davis Hanson Show. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs. A gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, I had uh, said on our last podcast that I had hoped we'd have some a little time to talk about um, Elon Musk and Gavin Newsom. And we ran out of time. I just want to bring it up today shortly before we talk about some of this Department of Defense insanity, partisan insanity there. But so Elon, uh, earlier this week, Elon Musk was back in California and he and Gavin Newsom were making goo-goo eyes at each other. And when last we, we left Elon Musk, he was shaking the dust of California off his feet, moving to Texas, where the headquarters for Tesla uh, is and I believe will remain, but some deal about opening a, a, a big plant in uh, in California. Some people are suspecting. Well, you know, Tesla has got Musk has gotten himself with probably some massive tax break from Gavin Newsom. Anyway, Victor, the great Californian, the frustrated yes. Californian. What are your thoughts, if any, about well, this? Elon Musk is a brave guy and all that, but he's a business person. First and foremost, that's where, where how he became a multi-billionaire. So what's the subtext? The subtext is that <laughs> Elon Musk sells 
about 45% of all California new cars. His Model Y car, I, I only know this because I bought a Model Y, is the best-selling car in California. Think of that. Outsells Chevy, Ram pickups, anything. And he sells way over 200,000 cars a year, Jack, California. And it's, like I said, it's 45% of the entire, it's the best-selling model in California. And I think California itself accounts for the, the uh, of all, you know, I think of all Teslas and all other electric cars combined, California accounts for 20% of all sales. And so the the bottom line is when he moved to Austin and he took on Twitter, that market that is the backbone of Tesla was endangered because all of these left-wing people, you could start to see they were selling Teslas or they were going to other electrical competitors. And uh, he had a lot of bad publicity. And California's, they thought, $25 billion, but $40 billion. So he's thinking... I'm just putting words in my implication is that he's thinking he's going to come to the rescue. Oh, you guys are in bad trouble. I.e., I'm in bad trouble, too, because I need this market because your affluent coastal corridor from San Diego to Boston buys 200 and 100,000 of my cars. And if I get on the wrong side of you, I'm going to lose that market and I can come in and fluff times and put and help you and it'll be a productive mutual relationship. And I think it will be so far. I mean, I'm watching my wife drive the model Y and she drives 35 miles each way to Fresno. And she just puts, you know, I wired the 220 right side of the wall and she just drives in, sticks it in two hours later. It's in the garage. She drives back up. 70 miles minimum, maybe 100 doing errors or 150, and then she's back and she does it for, and it, it's about short term. I don't know about the long term because I haven't done the maintenance yet on tires and all battery and all that stuff. But so far, for the first 2,500 miles, there's it's just a radical reduction in operating cost. Yeah. And so people in California are buying that. It's not good for the, I can think you, arguably, it's not good for the country unless you can solve how to produce electricity cheaply because you've got to go to, if you're going to do this, you've got to go to nuclear power unless you're, if you're going to ban natural gas and coal and the only inexpensive way to produce it, we don't have enough hydroelectric anymore. And the crazy left wants to destroy what we have. The only, and the solar wind just won't do it. So you've got to do nuclear power. If you do nuclear power, then maybe if we can solve the battery problem, so they're not expensive or they're not, you know, injurious to the environment or whatever the complaints are, then maybe it'll work. But right. uh, short term, it seems to be, and that's what's behind this, this new romance. I have a feeling that Gavin Newsom has contempt for Elon Musk and Elon Musk reciprocates that contempt. But this is a marriage of convenience. Well, <laughs> there was, there was some, they're good actors. The goo eyes were, we're pretty goo-goo. Well, Victor, let's move on to this Department of Defense. Uh, I shouldn't laugh as an intro to this story because it is it is troubling. 
Again, I'm going to have to read something here. Bear with me, listeners. This is a piece from Hot Air the other day, Ed Morrissey, and the headline is Scandal. Two two more Republicans say the Department of Defense, DOD, leaked their files to Dem Op Research Group. So here's here's how this story goes. Drip, drip, drip. The politicization scandal at the Department of Defense grows a little each day as more Republicans come forward. Two more have gone public with notices from the Air Force that their confidential files got handed over to Abraham Payton of Due Diligence Group, DDG, a Democrat oppo research firm that worked for House Democrats in the last election cycle. Now, uh, Politico has been covering this, and here's a little bit of a Politico report. Sam Peters, a Republican who challenged Representative Stephen Horsford, who is a Democrat from Nevada, in November, and Kevin Delecker, who fell short in the GOP primary race to take on Representative Susan Wild, Democrat in Pennsylvania, both received on February 8th letters from the Air Force notifying them that Abraham Payton of Due Diligence Group made multiple requests for their military personnel records last year. In both Peters and Delica's cases, the Air Force identified Payton, a former research director for the Democrat group American Bridge, as having, quote, inappropriately requested, end quote, copies of their records for, quote, for the stated purpose of employment and benefits. Victor, this brings to 11 Republicans who who had served, who have had their personnel files leaked to um, Democrat political campaign operatives. And Ed Morrissey, just read this uh, last thing. Uh, um, the, uh, he's pontif- not, not pontificating. He's wondering here. The claim technique involved here more than suggests that the effort may well go beyond the 11 cases cited by the Secretary of the Air Force. Want to bet that DDG pulled the same trick on the other service branches, assuming that this is even accurate. It worked on the Air Force. So why would Peyton and DGG have limited it to just these 11 They they obviously didn't. The analogous, the perfect simile is we know that we, we are going to know that other people in social media did what Twitter was doing. And the FBI was working with, you know, others, so, i.e. Facebook and others. Because you know why we know that? Because Mark Zuckerberg told us that, that the FBI was directing what he should and should not do as far as banning information about Hunter's laptop. And the same thing is true. If they're doing it in the Air Force, they were doing it in other branches of service. I kind of like that Peter's guy. I think he was the guy, didn't he say that if a hitman, uh, if you order a hit, the guy that orders it is as guilty as the hitman. He was trying to say that the Air Force knew is ultimately responsible right. for, for giving the weapon to try to destroy a Republican. But it's part of a larger narrative. And again, I, I keep repeating this, but in the dying citizen, I spent, you know, four or five months on the chapter of the unelected. And it's very scary what's happened to the DOD, the IRS, the CIA, the FBI. DOJ, they're operating as judge, jury, executioner, independent contractors, basically, and they're controlled by the left. I don't know why that is. I I speculated, maybe our listeners can, is it because if you're in government, you always want bigger, 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 bigger government, more and more taxes so that 
they pay you? Or is it because you have lifetime employment and you develop a utopian view of the universe? Or is it you hate that private buccaneer, entrepreneur, captain of industry, and so you are a regulatory type of agency or your intelligence or something? But I don't know what it is. But uh, I, I, I found this out, Jack, when I was the Schifrin professor at the U.S. Naval Academy. And I thought I was going to the bastion of American conservatism. I was just shocked. It was the most liberal place I had taught. And I've been a visitor at Pepperdine. I've been a visiting short term at UC Berkeley. I was a visiting professor at Stanford University. I work at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. I was at the Center for Behavioral Studies. I've lectured at probably 300. I have never seen a more left-wing environment. And there's something... Uh, I don't know what it is. Excuse, excuse me, Victor. I've done this before. 20 years ago, right? Yeah. This is not yesterday. This is a long time ago. No, it's a long time. And uh, these government agencies, but we all think that the FBI, the DOJ, the, we, you know, the James Comey's, the, the Brennan's, the Clappers, the McCabe's, the Millie's, all of these people are conservative because of the occupations that they pursue, that these are blood and guts, patriot. No, 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 no. Their first loyalty is to the state. And I don't mean the United States. I'm talking about the permanent Byzantine bureaucracy. And they become acculturated and they find out very quickly that the left looks at them with envious eyes and the left says, hmm. I can enact diversity, equity, inclusion. I can enact radical abortion. I can enact radical green policies by fiat because these are undemocratic organizations and they're government and they need funding from me. So what I will do is I will tell the Pentagon, we want subsidized transgendered surgeries or we want you to fly people to get abortions or I will tell the CIA or I'll tell the FBI, you know, you can do this and that. And in exchange for that, I will help grow government and protect you. And that's what this, that's how it's getting out of control. Eisenhower, remember when he gave that famous party in lecture in 1960 about the industri military industrial complex was onto it, but it's just dwarfs the problem then. And at least there was the excuse of the existential cold war. We have no excuse right. other than this thing is a robotic, organism that's taken a life of its own. Right. And these people are very dangerous. They don't believe in the Constitution. And when you criticize them, they call you unpatriotic. That's what's even scarier. But one of the biggest revolutions I think everybody in our audience is shocked about is that conservatives, traditionalists, Republicans, whatever particular label you fall under, you were convinced that national security, armed forces, intelligence, uh, investigatory, policing, these were the bulwarks of law and order and conservative tradition. No, they're not. They're on the cutting edge of left-wing revolution. They have been taken over by an entire new group of people. And, you know, whether it's you want to call it Lois Lerner or Andrew McCabe or Mark Milley or John Brennan or Bruce Orr, or Peter Struck, or Lisa Page. We can go on forever. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, a very great... dangerous people. 
Yeah, it's a it's a leap for people, Victor, because I think in our old cu- culture, I mean, we watch war movies and we you know, take uh, civics classes. It's things where, where the fumes from seventy years ago still carry on, but we we think it's, we're patriotic and we want to support these uh, fighting men and women, et cetera, et cetera. But why is it? Not possible to think that like the Soviet Union's military and their version of the FBI or Red China right now. I mean, why is it so difficult to conceive the military and who's a great patriot? Who is the patriot? Is it James Comey who made a fortune in between his uh, government curses working for Lockheed? And then he goes before the American people under oath and says 245 times. I don't remember when they ask him basic factual questions or he he interviews the president of the United States in a private conversation, assures him he's not an object of FBI investigation when he knows it is. And then he goes out and memorializes that on a government device and leaks it to the New York Times. And this is a man who said his organization basically said to Christopher Steele, we will pay you one million dollars if you can find one thing that's true. And when he couldn't, they took that dossier to a FISA court to delude them, to destroy the constitutional rights of U.S. citizen Carter Page. That is not somebody that I'm going to stick up for because he says he's FBI director, nor am I going to stick up for. Andrew McCabe, who lied four times to federal investigators, nor Christopher Ray, who did these stunts from the Virginia parents at board meetings to Mar-a-Lago, to James O'Keefe, to Peter Navarro. None of that. And I'm not going to stick up for Robert Mueller either. I'm not going to stick up for Anthony Fauci. I'm not going to stick any of these people. And they have taken the American trust and they become very wealthy and very powerful by abusing it, abusing it. And believe me, if Mark Milley has on his desk a dossier that says a colonel was worried about Donald Trump or was worried about a superior officer was too reckless. So on his own initiative, he called up a colonel in the People's Liberation Army and said, I'm worried. And according to my station, if I get an order, I'm going to let you know about it because I'm worried about my superior. They would they would put him in prison. They would put him in prison. And if somebody took a bunch of if you were these documents, if you're in the U.S. Army or Navy, if you're a submariner and you take a picture of a control board, you're done for. And so I have no sympathy for these people. And. Nobody asked them to be FBI agents. If they want to be an FBI agent, we ask the minimum that they follow the law. The FBI, if you just look at the list of all of the infractions and crimes that these agents are committing, it's just striking. And the disinformation and who knows what we're going to find out about the January 6, 44,000 hours. Uh, but it's it's something's happened to it. And right. I say that as a former supporter, a big supporter right. of the FBI, and I've always paid my taxes on time. But what the IRS does is frightening. And the same thing as the CIA and the DOJ. What the DOJ is doing under Merrick Garland is terrifying. Uh, the in, the unequal uh, and asymmetrical application of the law, depending on one's politics. It's just 
and one's race and et cetera. Right. So right. these are rogue organizations and um, they're very powerful and they're completely out of control. And the only way that's going to stop them is the Republicans have to win, keep the House and get that up to 40 or 50 seats. And they've got to uh, get a super majority in the Senate and they've got to win back the president. How did we get here was in the 60s this great society bureaucracies. And I went back and looked at, you know, I'm, I'm reviewing a great book by Mark Moyer. It's volume two called Triumph Regained. The first one was written 17 years ago, Triumph Forsaken about Vietnam. And there are about 600 pages. So it's going to be a monumental trilogy when he's finished. But between volume one and two, he wrote a lot of other books, but now he's returned to it. And it's pretty disturbing. But what it was getting me about LBJ, when he came in to office, he had a supermajority in the Senate. He had a 150, Jack, House member majority in the House of Representatives. He had the presidency. He had the liberal war in court. He had everything. And they, that's how they pushed through right. the great society and all that stuff. There's nothing comparable. And the only right. way you can stop it is to achieve that dominance in government. And the left knows it. And that's why we're going to have a billions of dollars, uh, sort of like what Molly Ball predicted in Time, uh, bragged about in Time magazine, how, you know, how Zuckerberg and everybody else did what they did. Victor, um, we've got to, you, you've written about um, the Super Bowl. We're a few weeks out. From from that having happened, but you have written a two part series about this for your website, victorhanson.com. And we're going to talk about uh, what prompted you to write this and more right after uh, this important message. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, um, oh, I just want to say about VictorHanson.com, which I, we're going to talk about this in a second. That is your website, the official home of you on the Internet. Victor writes uh, some select and exclusive articles, not some, several times a week. Uh, it's a copious amount of material that you write exclusively for the website. And if you like to read Victor, and you don't subscribe, well, guess what? You're not going to be able to read much of what this man writes in the course of a year. So at victorhanson.com, once you consider sub subscribing, it's $5 to check it out, $50 for the year, and you'll be able to read the ultra articles. Those are the exclusive pieces, two of which are titled 
um, the most recent exclusive uh, ultra pieces are our Neronian Super Bowl parts one and two, where, you know, Victor, I, you're a guy like I'm a guy. And I, by the way, I used to be a statistician for the Elias Sports Bureau. And I, I used to be an NFL statistician. I cared deeply about the NFL football and a great Yankee fan. And, uh, the New York Rangers, uh, I was a sports nut, and I could give a rat's patoot anymore, uh, in, in part because of the uh, the wokeification of our sports, but then also how our sports are being used to uh, become events that denigrate our culture also, well, which we see. We, so do. this, I think, is part of why you wrote the I the did. Piece. You know, I had did I had your attitude on a, lot, on a lot of people in our audience. They don't watch the NBA, the NFL, and they feel that it's Nero's banquet at Super Bowl time, at halftime. It always is. But I wanted to say, you know what, Victor, you're getting into a rut. You've got to go back to be empirical. So just wash your head of any preconceptions. Sit down and watch the Super Bowl and watch the halftime show. And what did I experience? The first thing I noticed was all these people were bragging about lift every voice and song. I like that black, a spiritual song, but not as a separate national anthem. So we had a two national anthems. You know what I mean? We had the black ant national anthem. And then we had, I guess, everybody's national anthem. And I said to myself, that's a sustainable proposition, isn't it? That you take one racial group that makes up 12 to 13 percent of the population and you have a separate in national global audience, a separate national anthem. That will work really well. It worked really well, didn't it? In Rwanda and Yugoslavia. And that's where we're headed. And I thought to myself, well, if Bull Connor and Lester Maddox were here today, they would say, well, you know, until we had that Warren court, we had Plessy versus Ferguson. That was a pretty good Supreme Court rule. We racists thought we could be separate but equal. So when we have our football games, we'll have the black folk. They'll have their separate anthem and we'll have our. What would have Martin Luther King said to that? And yet this thing was gaga by the announcers. And then we go into it, and I'm not, the game was, you know, the game was excellent, very exciting, but I, they're, they're suddenly bragging that they have, you know, 110, 112 million viewers, and it's back. And I'm thinking, well, I remember in 2015, they were bragging that they had, I think, 215 million. In other words, when we had 15 or 20 million more people in the country eight years ago, they had a bigger audience. So, and they were saying this is the second grade. And it's like the NBA was saying, well, we got 8 million people. And I thought, you know, 25 years ago, you had 20 million viewers with a much smaller country that, you know, had millions less people, I think 30 million less people. So it was just disinformation. And then, you know, I I, I think, you know, this is a meritocratic. I, I look at these great athletes and they are disproportionately African-American. And I think that's great because it's based on merit that each person who's African-American has proven themselves to be superior in that position, regardless of race. And that's the way America works. Because I really do not think 
that a coach puts a African-American player in the defensive backfield and says to himself, oh, I've got four African-Americans as defensive backfield uh, in my coverage, so I better get three white guys. I just don't think they do that. I think they go by pure merit. So then when I was watching this, I thought, well, this is funny because this is a very American, that this is what we're doing. But we don't do it anywhere else except in, in sports and maybe Hollywood. Why don't we? And what are the arguments why we don't, that it's a racist, unfair country when this is the most lucrative, prestigious, illustrious uh, pathway to riches and fame in the country to be an NFL player? It, it, and so then I thought, well, calm down. Let's watch, uh, you know, let's watch the halftime show. And I, you know, I I don't know what to say. I uh, am a... I don't know what I, uh, I'm don't a complete. Be a, don't be a I don't know, Victor. <laughs> well, I don't know anything about Beyonce and Jay-Z other than Jay-Z says some anti-Semitic stuff once in a while, like but many rappers do. But this Rihanna, I thought, you know, first of all, I was very fair to her. I said, all of these people that go on that Super Bowl rely on fireworks and hydraulic platforms and right sexual innuendo and spectacle in lieu of talent. It's not going to be Mark Knopfler or James Taylor or an Otis Redding type of singer that gets down with his guitar and just plays and is good, right? Right. right. Or even somebody I don't like, Barbara Streisand singing. It's not going to be that. They don't have the talent to pull that off. So they substitute the fireworks and the distractions. Okay. And that's what they did. You know, they dim the lights and then they have all these crazy people. So this Rwanda person whom I told, I'm told, you know, has sold what more records than I, I think she's the second best. After, yeah. In history. After Elvis. Yeah. 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 Uh, no, more than Elvis. I think. Oh, she, really? Yeah. I think I don't know if it's Beyonce and Jay-Z are ahead of her or what. But uh, the first thing I noticed, she gets up there and she's lip syncing. She she can't even lip sync according, you know, you can see her mouth move with the music and it's not coordinated. And I thought, wow, you're in front of you're bragging about 112 million global people and you've spent millions of dollars on all of these props. How hard would it be? How many times has she sang her signature song? 10,000 in practice and in performance. Don't you think you should? Is there nobody who knows anything about acoustics or electronic amplification and the Super Bowl that they couldn't amplify her song? Why couldn't she just sing, Jack? Why does she have to have it lip sync? I, I never understood it. And how did I know it was lip sync? Did I listen to any? No, I just watched it. Right. And I could see that she couldn't, she couldn't do it. Right. And then I thought, wow, most of the performance performers try to be almost semi-nude. I was thinking of Janet Jackson and the, you know, the malfunction. Wardrobe malfunction, yeah, right. Yeah. But this woman obviously was covered. And I thought, this is unusual. And I said to myself, Jack, she must be pregnant. And she was. So she's out there. And I, I gave her credit in my mind for, you know, motherhood and being out on stage pregnant. But then right. she starts, she can't leave it alone. So she starts in, how does a pregnant woman who's advanced in her pregnancy 
then start to dance and put her hands as if she's masturbating in her crotch on national TV, on global TV. Right. But what is the purpose of that? There's one thing that we all know that motherhood and pregnancy and public masturbation are not a good mix. I'm sorry if that sounds sexist. It's the same. It's, I think, it's, I think you've hit upon a fact there, Victor. Well, if you had a yeah. father that came out and said, guess what? My wife's pregnant and I'm going to grab my penis on national TV. That That's not right. And so this society, what I finished that article with on the ultra was never has a society been more Victorian at the same and prudish and the same time pornographic and that's our problem right now we're all shocked that if somebody goes on a date and they say something or they go to the workplace and they say hey nice legs we're shocked we didn't do that in the 50s well in the 50s they didn't have deep throat for 30 years and in the 40s when they made ill-considered remarks at the water cooler, there wasn't something like the Super Bowl where people were emulating masturbation while pregnant on TV. And so, yes, uh, it's wrong to have sexual banter, but there is sexual banter because sexual sexuality inundates this popular culture in the most raunchy and disgusting manner. And then to turn around and act like you're going to have, you know, some type of hysterical attack because you hear something sexual in other venues. It's just, it's just crazy. And so I, you know, professional sports, I've written them off and the entertainment industry. Uh, and it's nothing to do with race because I think probably of all people that I have listened to in my life, probably my favorite performer was Otis Redding. That guy had the most talent and he could, write song he could play them he had a beautiful voice he was a wonderful performer and i think back in my childhood when i was on a farm you know staying up late at night listening to kino radio uh and i when they would put on uh dion warwick or smoky robertson or the four i thought that was just wonderful what what what's what's kind of is that k-i-n-o is that a station yeah, K -K or? it was a it was a very famous rock station Okay, and, and it was at that time, there's a really well-known, you may have, when you've come to Fresno, the, the best talk show host, or I, I should say, he's a very good, but he has the best ratings. Uh, Ray Appleton had a long history. He was at other KFIG and these types of radio stations, but he was in his 20s. He's right. a prodigy. And he's, he's, he knows more about popular music of that era. But I would, as a high school kid, you know, 14 years old, my brother and I shared a small little room and we would listen to the radio at night. And I would listen to all of these wonderful songs by black entertainers. And then this whole idea that, that, that you have to have 55% of African Americans in commercials and we have to, to do all this is really insulting to the black community because when I was growing up, it wasn't just Sidney Poitier was, a black actor. Man, I look at that guy in Lilies of the Field. That was one of the most brilliant performances I've ever oh, seen. It was just, terrific. It right? was just stunning. And I listen yeah. to Otis Redding. It's stunning. And, uh, you know, I, uh, it, it's, it's, why can't we just let people do what they do and they will excel? And if they right. excel in music or if they excel, excel 
in one in the National Hockey League, and they're in North. So what? Uh, and I don't understand it. But when I watch this this Super Bowl, and I the announcers, and it's this raw raw stuff, and uh, it's I don't know. I I I think people are just now, you know, inundated. And right. I was thinking, does, do you really think that a Denzel Washington needs help? That guy is the most brilliant actor of our time. He really is. I know that I keep pounding this movie, Man on Fire, but when I watch that guy in Man on Fire, the way that he interrogates in that brutal scene, that Mexican narc official in, in the uh, Hermidad, the Brotherhood, that is one of the most chilling, eerie, but brilliantly performed performances I've ever seen. Yeah. He's a genius. And the idea that African-Americans are, if you're on an open playing field, can't compete is crazy. And yet, I, I don't understand it, that Stanford University has all of these efforts to encourage a particular races to be disproportionate. But the NFL doesn't have to do that, or Hollywood doesn't have to do that. Right. Why don't we just let it go. And then when people in the African-American community say, you know what? I want more of us to go to Harvard. Then people would say, well, what was the successful formula that we dominated the NFL? And what was the successful formula that we dominated uh, popular music? Oh, it was discipline, hard work, intact family. Well, let's apply that paradigm to college admissions and then we wouldn't have to worry about it but we can't do that we can't do that and part of the reason we can't do it is this white bicoastal upper elite elite that doesn't live among people who don't look like themselves or if they do they live with very very wealthy unrepresentative minorities that are just like themselves the don lamones of the world or the oprahs of the world or the whippy goldbergs of the world i don't care where they come from i'm talking about where they are now Right. And that's why this whole dysfunctional racial dialogue has proceeded, or I should say, descended as it has. But that's a long rant. But boy, I, I, that, yeah. that, that NFL is part Nero's Rome. It's part Petronius' Satyricon. It's part it's kind of a Soviet state-run athletic event, you know. Victor, lay it on to onto this in sports is is the is the suppression of uh, masculinity in the sense of like manliness, which is considered virtue. And it's I I, I have uh, on the side when I when I want to be really distracted, I look up NFL this week in the NFL in nineteen like sixty eight, oh, and no. it's a it's a really different Ray game. Nitz, Ray Nitschke and D- <laughs> Dick Butkus and yeah, yeah, Jim, Jim Brown and Big Daddy Lipscomb and all those. Well, let great me tell guys. you when when Jim Brown scores a or Gail Sayers you know score a touchdown. There's no um, bizarre kind of a dance that goes on, or if if Ray Nitschke tackles somebody, there's no chest thumping. It's it's kind of like men were men and knew it didn't need to do this uh, uh, outrageous bravado. And this is what the NFL is, and in, in its way, the the you know major leagues 
baseball have similar things. And to, to me, this is what really takes away also from sports in America is, is uh, man, I just, you you hit the nail on the head. You remember in the early sixties, I would wait all week to watch the NFL on Sunday and the LA Rams for one reason, Jack, they had those guys called the fearsome foursome. Yeah. And it was those huge linemen. There were Lamar. Dave Deacon I, I know Jones. them. Yeah. Yes. Lamar <laughs> Lunday. Remember Merlin Olson? He had a Merlin PhD Olson. from University of Utah, I think. And then yeah. Deacon Jones and I, Rosie Greer. He became kind of a, a community. They were the they were these huge and they were modest and they were wonderful at what they did. And it was ecumenical and there was no racial question. Merlin Olson and Deacon Jones and they just excelled. And those guys didn't make any money at all, hardly. And yet they were professionals. They were true professionals. And I don't remember any of that weird dancing in the end zone or spiking the ball or one knee or any of that. Or I don't remember any of the cult of the personality. You know, I like Tom Brady, but this whole idea about his marriage and this and that, I don't really care. Joe Namath kind of started that, but uh, he did it in a different, even he did it in an understated way compared to the present. But it's become, it's, you know, it's become, uh, I, I say Nero in the Golden House and what, you know, what Nero did at, when he went to the Olympics, <laughs> it was the same thing. Uh, and he went to Greece and competed, and, and even the Roman, the Hippodrome, and and Constantinople, or the Circus Maximus at Rome, it's the same kind of weird spectacle. Only we don't kill lions and elephants anymore. But I bet, I bet, I'm sure we'll get to that soon. But gosh, somebody needs to tell the Super Bowl. You know what? You don't need to do this. You need right. to get talent. So go find a folk singer or someone who's able to perform without lip syncing, without a bunch of costumes, without pornographic gestures, without 50 people who dance around and also grab their, you know, and we don't need that Madonna porn off. We don't need, remember Miley Cyrus and all that stuff with her. That <laughs> the wrecking thing. ball. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was horrible. It was talentless. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. awful. And we don't need all of these athletes. We could have a simple, rule that when you intercept a pass and you run 80 out, you just take the ball and put it down yeah. in the end zone and you understate it. And we'll get the message. Understate is right. Yeah. Less is more. Less is more. Yeah. Hey, Victor, we, we, we have a little time left and I, I want to, um, I want to talk about something I saw on, on your website I was kind of surprised and I hope folks don't think this won't think this is a commercial, but I was on it the other day, and I saw an an ad, uh, the link for a, a historical tour. And I thought we had last, and I'm not you, you're not being accused of anything here. But when you went to Israel last year, and you used to do these annual tours, and got screwed up by COVID, but um, I thought, well, that was it. And here I see. You are doing a tour in 2024, May of 2024, to uh, it's uh, Chantilly to Versailles, but it's basically a tour of uh, a military tour of Normandy and the landing beaches, etc. And it looks really, <laughs> looks really 
Really cool. You're saying you, what the happened? What the hell happened, Victor? No, not what the hell happened. Whatever the hell happened, you're doing it. So what, would you well, what happened like, was what is uh, going to happen on this? Tour? I thought, you know, I had done I think 17 or 18 consecutive years, and also you got to put this in context that I was gone because I had to do the pre-tour, the post-tour. So I was gone right. about 17 days at the end of May until mid-June for 17, 18 years in a row. And then on top of that, I was going initially four and a half weeks, and then I got down to two, but to Hillsdale over from September 1st. So I had not been, uh, I have a, a small vacation home. I hadn't been there in June in 17 years, and I hadn't been on Labor Day with my family in, in 21 years, 20 years. Right. So I said, and, you know, they used to, my daughter used to have a birthday. I hadn't been on, I've been alone on my birthday for 20 years. Not that I'm lonely and weepy and vulnerable, <laughs> although I probably am. Maybe you are. Saying, right? Yeah, people are listening. Hey, Victor, we listen to you. We know better right. than you that your shortcomings and narcissism. Uh, but my point is, I thought I needed a break. So then COVID came and I had long COVID. And I said to Al Phillip, who is my partner, and he's, He's an absolute genius. He's an Austrian and he's fluent in European languages. He's a, he's a brilliant tour. Pre- and he and I have put this on and he, I do the content and he does the operational aspect of it. And believe me, at least the way I look at it, the content and what he does is much more arduous and time consuming than what well, I you, do. You know, I ran the National Review cruises for years. So I, there's, there is some heavy lifting going you know, on. You there. know yeah. that the guys like us who showed up to talk, uh, had it easy. But my point is he wanted to do, so when I got COVID, I said, see what happens. I, I, I was very ill in Israel. I mean, I couldn't even walk across the room. And I say that as somebody who feels almost completely well now. So I feel it's a gift from God. I really do that long COVID for me was a 10 month phenomenon of hell, but it didn't go on. Like a lot of people that I have great empathy for are still suffering from it. I have neurological problems and eye problems and and fatigue and stuff, but not like it's it's minor compared to what it was. So I said in the middle of that, I said to Al, I think I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And I'm, you know, I'm 69 years old. So, and I'm under contractual, uh, my con I'm doing the Hillsdale cruise this year. So I said, and then he just, you know, kind of kidding around said, well, what if we did the 80th anniversary of Normandy and we went to Utah and Omaha and St. Mary Eglise again? And like we did way, way back 16 years ago, we do the Hall of Mirrors and the Versailles Treaty. And you can lecture on D-Day and, and amphibious operations and the pre-bombing and the Lundstedt versus Rommel on whether we use the Panzers and what was how many tigers were there? Uh, all this weird and the fillets leading to the fillets, all this stuff, right? I wrote about it in the second world right. wars, and then I've been there a lot. Right. And then he said, you know, we're going to get Tom Connor, who's just one of the sweetest, most confident military historians there is at Hillsdale. He's retired now. He's wonderful, and we'll get Tom Connor to come, and he he knows it backwards and forwards. So I just said, oh, come on now. I'm old. I'm tired. And he, he just went ahead and planned it. So he just called me one day and said, it's all planned. It's all ready to go. All I need you to say is maybe. And I said, maybe. And then the next thing, his brilliant, talented daughter, who's 
uh, uh, internet had it on and it, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm getting excited for one more oh, time. One more. You know, I, kinda, I don't want to sound like uh, comparing tiny things to great things. I don't want to sound like a Tom Brady type of person where it says just one more game, just one more season, but I'm going to, it's been very, it's been very successful uh, from the idea that you could start a tour. Right. With n- nobody knows who you are. You're just on the merits of you're going to have an intellectually rigorous 12 right. days and you're going to have five-star hotels and you're going to cut out all the ad expense that most tours have, the overhead, you're going to be no administrators. You're going to do it yourself. You're going to finance it yourself, and you're going to get the best prices. And every single morning, these people are going to have 45-minute lecture from a Bruce Thornton or Tom Connor and visitors. We've had, you know, we've had people from from the American School of Classical Studies in Athens. We've had Joe Joff, the uh, editor of Zy. We get all sorts of uh, Europeans usually, and we will again this time. Right. But uh, and the group is just wonderful. Thirty thirty percent have gone on at least one. Thirty percent have gone on every one, and thirty percent are are new. No, yeah. And this time, I think we're almost already sold out. Oh well, well, I I, I must say, Victor. Anecdotally, I hear people all the time. Lots of anecdotes. A, you're lucky to host this show and talk to Victor, and no, even know Victor. I give my eye teeth for that, or. Oh my gosh, it's too bad he's not doing one of those again because I would that would be the highlight of my life to have gone on one of those Victor tours. So it's people should check it out if you feel that I, way. I've check developed it out a lot of website. friends. I say there's thirty or forty people that, over the years that have gone on them that I'm very close to. Yeah, and and they write or call me or I see them and they're very dear friends and they're very yeah. nice, wonderful people. I one of the uh, I was. Incorporating my daughter, who helped on four of them, and she had all these wonderful ideas about how to bring scooters to the disabled, right. Susanna. And she was kind of an empath. Empath. She was always coming up to me and saying, "Dad, you're neglo- Mr. Smith has got a a bad leg, and you're letting him linger. We need to go get a, a limo for him." Or right. Mrs. Jones uh, gets tired very easily, and I want to leave earlier and take a taxi and take her back to the. She was that kind of person. She was running mm-hmm. it. She, you know, died very unexpectedly from leukemia. It, but uh, that was part of my idea that I would kind of get her involved, and then one day she would be able to take it over. But uh, so, but my point is that I, I met all these wonderful people. There was a guy in Chicago. He's a businessman, uh, John Bailey. And my God, he's one of the sweetest guys and most knowledgeable, successful entrepreneur. I'm just picking out a name to show you where right. kind of people go. Right. And uh, he was so nice to my daughter about giving her advice about business. And he, he's just a wonderful person. And I say that because uh, <laughs> these people are very successful. I don't mean money-wise, but just in life in general. They're independent. They're autonomous. They tend to be conservative, uh, obviously. And I'll tell you one story, and then I'll shut up. So uh, we try. I don't try to do it mischievously, but I have a little bit of that in my character. So I try to go to European institutions that are very left-wing. Right. You know, they, they like like the EU, <laughs> whether it's right. in Brussels or Strasbourg right. or the NATO headquarters outside of Brussels. So I took them all 
there. And I hired this, you know, I we called up and we got this very, very eloquent um, British guy, right? And he's the NATO propagandist. And he's going to give a little talk about NATO. But of course, the Europeans are all left wing. And they had, I think she was from uh, Slovakia, another person. And they go in and they can't help it. And every American audience that goes in there is probably pretty well off and left wing. So he goes in about the American role in NATO. And unfortunately, (laughs) they, you know, we must we we have a nuclear return. But you Americans were the only people to ever to use a bomb in combat. You should you you have to live with that burden of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then, you know, and, and you were putting missiles in Germany and subjecting and and so that the and then. Very, I said to myself, I just thought, oh, my God, this guy is going to get it big time. Yeah. So he said, should any questions like (laughs) the group just I mean, I've never seen anybody devour them. Well, you know, you want to have a million dead or you want to start pay the Japanese back for killing 16 million people in China. (laughs) And then the next question. (laughs) And you know what? So we had so we put Germany under our nuclear umbrella. So we sacrificed New York. If the Soviets go into Berlin and we're supposed to feel guilty about that and you don't want the Pershing missile, take them out. Let them you can deal with the SS-10 Russian fine with us. And if you don't want three hundred and thirty thousand, you should have took them out. American troops from day one. And oh, by the way, these were different questions, Uh, like one question. Uh, I'm mistaken, sir. Um, Did the United States. Did the United States transport without one person lost two million people between 1917 and 1919 <laughs> win the war and then to keep the troops their occupation? Oh, oh, I'm mistaken. I somehow thought that the United States had to do it all over again in the Second World War. And did did they did the United States help? Who won the Cold War? And and so this guy just <laughs> he came up to me and he was just. I felt sorry for him. And this has happened in different venues in Austria. <laughs> and our guys are so great, but they're so talented and bright. I mean, they're right. I couldn't yeah. have done as well as they do. <laughs> yeah. They're business people. They're in the real world, right? They're making decisions. They all run businesses or, or they're doctors or lawyers. And they're, they deal with all these different types of situations, but they're not hot house academics. But anyway, just to finish it, the guy comes up to me afterwards and says, uh, Mr. Hansen, I got to talk to you. I said, yeah. He said, who are you? And I said, who are me? <laughs> oh, I mean you, you people. Who are you people? Where did you come from? I could, in a hundred lectures, I've never seen any Americans like you. They don't exist. Where did you come from? I'm treated with respect and nodding. These people were furious at me. What did I do? And I said, you've met real Americans. Right. <laughs> this right. is America. It's not the people that you that get from, you know, the universities or Hollywood or whoever you talk to. Get used to it. This right. is America. And we're not going to we're proud of what we did. And we're always going to be proud. And we didn't appease Hitler. And we weren't we didn't give up 70 miles of Belgium in World War One. We didn't crumble. You know, we didn't cop out on the Cold War. We did these things. We're not bragging about it, but you brought it up. Right. And 
you know, probably uh, used to those, uh, you know, the Ivy League alumni travel programs where they uh, that's probably what he had. Well, you know, that's funny you said that, because when I talked to Al and we decided this, what I did was I looked at the Stanford, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, you know, alumni tours. And I gave him the list of hotels where they were staying because sometimes they advertise it. And I said, can you beat the hotels? You know what I mean? If they were class four, I want luxury class in every city. He said, yes, I can. And then I said, these are the speakers they have. I can get better speakers. And they're having eight lectures. I can give 11. So and then I said, I want this to be 60 percent of the cost. And I said to Al, where, why are they charging so much? Well, advertise. I said, we're not going to advertise. We're no money on advertising. We'll do it through our website. And we have no administrators. Everybody that's on this tour works. Right. And we, we were had, you know, two young women as aides and one was my daughter. And we had, uh, Rebecca Dell was an administrator at, at Hillsdale was wonderful. And gosh, we did it at, very little cost and we have a very com- was very competitive and the only tragedy is the last five years we've had to limit the number of people that could come because we've tried a hundred and it's not the same intimate experience right. as 50 and we've got two or three hundred that want to go so yeah. yeah we've had people that call and want to buy it and i thought it has no value <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> what am i going to do and one guy called me and said well why don't you do like We'll buy you out and we'll run nine or 10 of these. And then you can, <laughs> you can be Rick Steves and fly around for one day to each one of them. And I said, oh I'm God. no Rick Steves. I can't. <laughs> right. So, that's anyway. Uh, that gosh, was that's the story insane. of the VDH tours. That yeah. We'll have one last one. Well, again, if anyone is interested in what that last one is, go to victorhanson.com and you'll click on the link for it. It's really, wow. We'll have a great lecture on tanks. I promise all of you, we're going to talk about the Panther uh, versus the Sherman versus the late entry uh, Pershing versus the T-34 versus the Stalin and what what their role, if any, uh, was in the Normandy campaign and what the fables and exaggerations are about them versus the reality. That'll be very interesting. And stuff like that. Those are the types of discussions we have. Right. Well, Victor, I'd like to thank uh, our listeners for doing just that listening. Uh, Very loyal uh, listenership here. No matter what platform or website you listen to the show on, thank you. Those who listen on iTunes and uh, Apple, can leave zero to five star ratings and nearly everyone leaves five stars. We thank you. And some of those folks also leave comments. I'm going to read two here quickly. Uh, One is titled great show. I began listening after my dad gave me the savior generals, which I enjoyed upon finding the podcast. I recommended it to my dad. We now both listen and discuss the show regularly. Great and balanced insights without demagoguery. I learn a lot every episode. And this is from Union County Dad. And then another one titled Best Overall Commentary. In my humble opinion, there's deep analysis, great historical fluency, and measured critique of public policy and cultural trends. Highly informative. VDH is a gentleman and a scholar. 
a rare find these days. That's from Read More Poems. Thank you. Read More Poems. Thank you, Union County Dad. Before I say thank you to everyone for listening, I do want to remind our listeners that Jack Fowler, the guy who's babbling with the Bronx accent right now, every week writes a free email newsletter called Civil Thoughts, published by Amphil, the Centers for Civil Society. And it it has a dozen plus recommended readings of things I've come across in the previous week that I think you, dear intelligent American, would appreciate knowing and maybe even reading. Click on the link, read the excerpt. So that's, you can sign up for that at civilthoughts.com. And thank you for those who do that and those who send kind notes about uh, that they're enjoying the, uh, the newsletter. So thank you all. Thank you, Victor, again, for sharing all Uh, the uh, wisdom you did today and we will be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Thank you everybody for listening. It's much, much appreciated.